We do, because the Word of God is the means by which He builds us up. We don't need human opinions. We don't need human ingenuity and wisdom. We need the Word of God. And so let's do that. Let's pray now, and then we'll dig into the Scripture together. Father, we're so grateful yet again to be gathered together on the Lord's Day. What a wonderful, peculiar day it is for us. The day we specifically and especially remember our Lord's resurrection the dawn of a new creation having come upon us, a preview of what is to come, Lord, that there's going to come a day in which we will enter into the final rest, into the new heavens and the new earth, and we reign with our Savior forever in perfect glory, and the Lord's day becomes a foretaste of that, and we're so grateful for this day you've appointed for us to take time and rest and worship you together as a church. What a privilege it is. We're thankful, Lord, for the means of grace thankful for prayer, that we would have access to the throne of God, that the God who we've hated, the God whose law we've broken, that's the God who hears us because of His grace. We're thankful for the Scripture. We're thankful that You speak to us from heaven. And even though we live in a crazy time, and not only in our nation, but just in the world, a time in which people can't figure out truth, there is no truth, you make up your own truth, there's just no understanding and concept of truth today. We have absolute truth given to us in the Scripture. Your Word is certain. Your Word is a light in the darkness. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And Lord, we're just so thankful for Your Word. And we're thankful for all the spiritual gifts that You've given to us as a body. Thankful for all of those who serve our church so faithfully in so many ways, from playing music to making meals to picking people up for church on Sunday, all kinds of ways people in our church serve, and I'm just so thankful for that. But Lord, we especially thank You as we gather together corporately as a church for the gift of prophesying, preaching, teaching the Word. We're thankful for the Word and how it builds us up, how it makes us know Your will. It makes simple people wise. It gives us wisdom and understanding, and it opens our eyes and our hearts so that with the eye of faith, we may behold Your glory. And we're thankful for that, Lord. And Lord, we don't know the trajectory of our nation, what's going to happen. It looks bleak. We know that Romans 1 is a perfect commentary on what's taking place now. People abandon God, they reject God, and God abandons them. God hands them over to their depravity, their depraved minds. They give themselves to degrading passions and do things that are not proper. You end up with gender fluidity and just such absurdities. Such absurdities, Lord. And we pray that You would be gracious to our nation. We pray that You would raise up churches and church planters and shepherds and just Christians in general, disciple makers who will go into the world with the Gospel, go into their workplaces with the Gospel, living godly before men, letting their light shine before men, proclaiming the good news of salvation, and that You would use us, even here at Christ as King, to reach our community, to reach our city, to reach New York and beyond, and that You would be pleased to use people like us to bring about a great awakening in our day, that people would be drawn to Christ, that Your kingdom would come, and You would be glorified. And we are confident, Lord, that no matter what happens with America, the church of Christ continues on, unabated. Christ will build His church. The gates of Hades will not come against it. Nothing will thwart the kingdom of God, and for that we give thanks to You, Lord. And now as we open the Scripture, we pray yet again that You would help us, that You would give us the ability to understand the truth, that You would illumine our minds and our intellectual faculties so that the truth would come in 
and that you would increase our love for the truth and transform our lives for your glory. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, 1 John is our current study on Sunday morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to be in a passage this morning that takes us from chapter 2 into chapter 3, so if you don't believe we're making progress, uh, this morning will be the proof of it. Uh, We've been in 1 John for about three or four months now, but uh, we finally are going to move in to the next chapter. But this is what we do. We take the Word of God as it comes. We take it verse by verse, word by word. Because we do believe every word is inspired, and therefore every word should be thoughtfully considered by the people of God. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, all the way to chapter 3, verse 3, that will be our text this morning. And as you probably know, the chapter and verse divisions in your Bibles, they're not original. They're, they were not a part of John's original manuscript. They were added later, sometime way later, by translators to help us find our way around the Bible. So you think it's difficult to find you know, Hezekiah now. Uh, imagine if you didn't have uh, uh, chapter and verse divisions. It would be a lot more difficult to find uh, you know, those Old Testament prophet books that are one chapter long. But thank God we have chapter and verse divisions. But even though they're helpful, and I, I'm thankful that we have them, yet sometimes I think they get it wrong. And I think that's the case here. I think verse 29 of chapter 2 should really be verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, I think this all kind of goes together. It's one section, one unit of thought, one idea. And that idea, that thought, that passage is going to be the subject of our attention this morning and next week as well. So just kind of a little review and context. We know that John wrote this letter. He wrote it from Ephesus to the churches of Asia Minor. And he wrote the book because of a group of false teachers who were seeking to deceive the Christian faithful there. A group of false teachers that many have identified as incipient Gnosticism. They were essentially Gnostics, proto-Gnostics. They denied the truth about Jesus. They denied that He was God. They said He's just one of these many emanations, these kind of lesser beings that have come from Him. They denied His real and true humanity. They said Jesus is more like a phantom, like a ghost. He just seemed to be a man. They denied the necessity of holiness. They denied the need to love. They had this dualistic view of the world. To them, you know, what their body did was just irrelevant. It just was kind of running its course. But their spirits were pure. They were pure in spirit. They had been enlightened. And so they would actually indulge in sin while simultaneously denying they even had sin. It was quite a paradox. But this is the group of people that John was dealing with. His flock was under attack. They were being disturbed, being potentially deceived, seduced, led astray by the heretics. And John writes to refute those lies and to present a series of tests by which the believers of Asia Minor could distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity, between the truth and error. It becomes a series of tests for us by which we can determine if we have eternal life. And there is three tests, in fact. There's a doctrinal test, a moral test, and a social test. The tests deal with what we believe, how we live, and how we love. True Christians believe the truth doctrinally. They obey the truth morally. They love in truth socially, relationally. That's the litmus test of true Christianity. If you want to know if you're a true Christian, if you want to know if you're saved, 
If you want to know you're going to go to heaven when you die, if you're going to enter into eternal glory one day, then this book and the test that it contains are for you. And John just keeps cycling through these tests over and over again. And you already know that. Perhaps you're thinking, why does he keep saying the same thing every week? It's because John keeps saying the same thing every week. And if God put it in His Word that way, it's probably pretty important. So just cycling through these tests, we're now in cycle 2. The first cycle started in verse 1 of chapter 1, obviously, and ran all the way to verse 17 of chapter 2. But with verse 18, John began the second cycle of these three tests. And he began yet again with the doctrinal test, uh, the Christological test, the proper view of the person and work of Jesus. He started by exposing the Antichrist, these false teachers who were denying the truth about Jesus, were not Christians, they were not believers, they were not the people of God, they were anti-Christ. We don't have to look around for a final anti-Christ, they're already around us now. Anyone opposing, <clears throat> anyone opposing the true Christ is an anti-Christ. But then John, after describing the anti-Christ, who they are, what they do, he then described our response to the anti-Christ. He called us, to abide in Christ, to continue in the truth. You and I, despite the Mormons knocking on our doors and the Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on our doors, and I got a nice text message yesterday on Facebook from the LDS Church, so despite all of their attempts to deceive us, you and I must hold fast to that which we've heard from the beginning, namely, the truth about Jesus. But now starting in verse 29, John transitions from the doctrinal test Back to the moral test. This is part two of the moral test. Let me read our text to you. 1 John 2.29-3.3 verse John writes, If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. One lie our secular and even evangelical culture today believes is the lie that all people are the spiritual children of God. We're all God's children, they say. We're all loved by God. We're all, we all belong to God. Surely, we're all God's children. That's a lie that people today believe. That's not uncommon. But in reality, the shocking reality, perhaps, to our culture, is that only true Christians are the true children of God. Only true Christians are the true children of God. You see, when we speak of the fatherhood of God, we can do so in several different categories. Uh, For instance, God is Father within the Trinity. God is Father within the Trinity. That is to say, the first person of the Trinity is the Father of the second person of the Trinity. The Father is obviously the Father of the Son. You don't have a Father without a Son. You don't have a Son without a Father. The Father has eternally been the Father to Christ. Christ is the eternal, essential Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. He is one in nature with God, 
He is begotten of God from everlasting, and therefore Jesus is the Son of God. So that's God's fatherhood within the Trinity. But then there's a sense in which God is Father by way of creation. God is Father by way of creation. And as Creator, there is a sense in which God is Father of all. God is Father of all. For instance, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, we read this, Do we not have all have one Father? Has not one God created us? The answer, of course, is yes. We all have one Father because we have one God who has made us all. And even though those words were spoken probably specifically to Israel as a nation that God had created, God had formed, God had specifically chosen to be a covenant nation through whom the Messiah would come, they were peculiarly the people of God, it still generally connects God's fatherhood with His creative activity. So in that sense, everyone is a child of God by creation. Even the angels are called sons of God in the Scripture. There's another example of this universal fatherhood of God. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And the Apostle Paul in Acts is working his way around to different places, preaching the gospel, heralding the good news of Christ. And as he did so, specifically in the Gentile pagan regions, he would begin by providing them with a biblical worldview. He would begin by providing them with a biblical view of God. And that's what he did here to the Athens, or to the uh, here in Athens to the Athenians. And as he is preaching to them, in verse 29, he makes this statement: "Being then the children of God, being then the children of God." Why did he say that? Why did he say that? Go back to verse 24, Acts 17, verse 24. Paul says, "The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth." does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. In other words, God is the Creator of everyone. He is the universal, exclusive Creator. That's the context. Then He goes on and says, "...having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation," verse 12, that they would seek God if perhaps they may grope for Him and find Him. That's the purpose for which He made us, to seek after Him. Though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. We're all made by one God. We're all made by one Creator. One God has made everybody. He's the sustainer of all creation. And therefore, verse 29, He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. God is our maker. There's only one God. He's created all of us. And therefore, we should not worship idols. We should think correct thoughts about God. And in that sense, Paul says, we are all the children of God by way of creation. Back to 1 John now. 1 John 2. So we're all children of God in a general sense by creation. However, spiritually, that is not the case. Spiritually, only believers are the children of God. And this is where many in our culture fail to make the distinction. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8 as He was being confronted by the hypocritical religious leaders. He told them, If God were your Father, you would love Me. 
So if, if you're a child of God, if God is your Father, what do you do? You love Him. You love Christ. You believe in Christ. Which implies then that if you do not believe in Christ, God is not your Father. You're not a child of God. And if you're not a child of God, if God is not your Father, then who is your Father? Jesus tells us. Verse 44 of John 8, He says plainly, You are of your Father, the devil. You are of your Father, the devil. If you do not believe in Christ, if you do not love Christ, you are not the child of God spiritually. You are a child of Satan. A child of the devil. In fact, that's exactly what John says here in chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, 1 John. John says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. There's the categories. There's the categories. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And John says the difference between the two is obvious. And we'll consider that difference over the next several weeks. But only believers are children of God in a spiritual sense. Not all people are God's children salvifically, redemptively. And therefore, it is absolutely critical that you be able to determine that you are a child of God. Are you a child of God? Are you a true believer? How do we know that? How can we determine if we're God's true children? Why did God even choose to make us His children? What's the motive? What's the result of being a child of God? What's our responsibility as the children of God? John's going to answer these questions this morning in our text by presenting four aspects of our sonship in Christ. Four aspects. We see the evidence, we see the motive, we see the result, and we see the responsibility. The evidence, the motive, the result, and the responsibility of our sonship And as we consider those aspects, my hope is that you would come to have a greater understanding of and a greater appreciation for your sonship in Christ and be motivated to live up to that glorious status. So, four aspects of our sonship. Let's consider these one by one. We'll look at the first two this morning and we'll look at the last two next week. So, first of all, John presents to us the evidence of our sonship. The evidence. Look at verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. If you know that He is righteous, John says. He's implying by that that this is a truth that as a Christian you should know and you can know. You can know that He is righteous. Who is the He? Who is He referred to? It's Christ. It's Christ. The one who verse 28 says is coming. He's coming. In fact, this is kind of the connection between verse 28 and 29. The one who is coming, the one that we want to stand before with boldness and confidence, we don't want to shrink away from Him and shame at His coming, that one who's coming is the righteous one. This judge, this executioner, this one who is going to administer justice to the nations is the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is righteous unlike many of our political leaders, unlike many of the laws in our land and our government, Christ is a righteous judge, a righteous Savior. This is similar to some of the other statements that John has made throughout this epistle. For instance, back in chapter 1, verse 5, John said, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. 
God is impeccably holy. He is perfectly righteous. There is no sin, no falsehood, no impurity in God at all. In chapter 2, verse 1, John referred to Him as Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. That is the righteous one. The the one who is perfectly righteous and is the source of our righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 5, He says of Christ that in Him there is no sin. Christ is the sinless one, the righteous one, the perfect one. And Christians should believe and know this truth. And now from this truth, John is going to draw a logical conclusion. Jesus is righteous. What does that word even mean, by the way? The word righteous? The word righteous, the word dikaios, it has the idea of being right, being approved by God, being just, meeting God's standards. You see, we know what it means to be declared righteous in a court of law. To be righteous is to be innocent. It's to be not guilty. It's to be found uh, meeting the standards of the law. Jesus is the one who is good, who is righteous, who is just, who is sinless, who is perfect. And there is a logical conclusion that John draws from that truth. Look back at verse 29 again. He says, If you know that He is righteous... You know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. That's a logical deduction. It just follows. If Christ is righteous, those who are born of God in Christ will manifest His righteousness. It just goes without saying. Now it's important to note here that John is not telling us how to be right with God. John is not talking about that. We know how to be right with God. Faith and faith alone in Christ alone. Works do not contribute to our salvation. Ceremonies, rituals, religiosity, none of that commends us to God. None of that justifies us before God. We are right with God by faith alone. But John here is talking about how we can know that we are right with God. How we can know we are the children of God. We become the children of God through faith in Christ. We know we're the children of God by the practice of righteousness. Practicing righteousness. That word practicing, by the way, it conveys a habitual pattern of life. Continuous action. This is a path on which the believer walks. Jesus would call it a narrow path, a narrow way. It's a, it's a way of life. It's, a, it's what dominates us. If someone was to look at your life, What would they say characterizes it? Is it sin or is it righteousness? John says the true believer is one who practices righteousness. The word righteousness, it's related to the word righteous, obviously. The word dikaiasune, and it has the idea of meeting God's standards, being approved of God, right in the sight of God. Let me see if I can kind of give you a biblical definition of this word. Turn to chapter 3 for a minute. Chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. John says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So what is sin? Lawlessness. It's the breaking of God's holy law. That's what sin is. Now go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 17. John adds here, in chapter 5, verse 17, All unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. 
So let's see if we can put this together. Sin is breaking God's law, and unrighteousness is sin. So they are synonymous. They are used interchangeably. Unrighteousness, then, is to break the law of God. Unrighteousness is to break the law of God. Well, righteousness, then, would be the opposite of that. What is the opposite of breaking the law of God? Keeping the law of God. Obeying the law of God. So righteousness is to obey the law and the word of God. It is to live in a manner that is pleasing to God, that is in conformity with the will of God and the truth of God. And John says, all true believers do that. All true believers, all true children of God manifest obedience to the word of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul refers to the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Galatians 5, he refers to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. These are the, the fruits. These are the, the products that the Spirit of God, the attitudes, the conduct that the Spirit of God produces in the life of a true believer, such as peace, joy, patience, love, goodness, self-control, etc. These are the attitudes and the conduct that the Spirit produces in all who belong to Christ. So righteousness then is conduct that is in conformity with God's will, God's ways, and God's law. All true believers do that. That's why back in chapter 2, a passage we looked at in detail uh, several weeks ago, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, John says, This is how we know that we've come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. The evidence that you know Christ, the evidence that you love Christ, the evidence that you belong to God, is that you obey the Word of God, the commandments of God. That's not very popular today, is it? We live in a very antinomian society where it's all about cheap grace, easy believism. We don't need the law of God. It's not uncommon to hear people say today, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And by that, they mean I can do whatever I want. I can use God's grace for licentiousness, a license to sin, run rampant in my sin, and in doing so, they deceive their own hearts. Scripture is crystal clear that the law of God has the moral aspect of that law has continuing biding validity for all believers in every age so that those who do not obey Christ are not true believers. True believers practice righteousness. And this is because the text says we are born of Him. We're born of Him. John MacArthur rightly says this, He says that John looks from effect, that is righteous behavior, to cause, being truly born again, to affirm that righteous living is the proof of being born again. That's right. We practice righteousness because we're born of God. The cause is the new birth, the grace of regeneration, the God granting us His own nature. The effect, the inevitable result, the fruit of that is practicing righteousness. Living a life that is pleasing to God. So it's not that we muster up righteousness by our own effort and then God is pleased with that and so He saves us and makes us His children. On the contrary, it's that God, because God saved us, because He poured out His grace upon us, we're enabled by Him to practice righteousness. But it's all because we are born of Him. That takes us back to John chapter 3, right? What does Jesus tell Nicodemus in John 3? You must be what? Born again. 
must be born again. They used to say in Whitfield, he would keep telling them, you must be born again, you must be born again. And they would say, why do you keep telling me that I must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. It's the inevitable reality. You have to be born again. Born from above. Born from heaven. Born of the Spirit. That's why our message is so scandalous, isn't it? We're telling people, you were born wrong the first time. That's pretty offensive, isn't it? You're not enough. You're not good enough. That's what the cross says. That's what the Gospel says. You are not good enough. You were born dead the first time. You need to be born alive a second time. You were born of the flesh. Now you need to be born of the Spirit. What you need is a supernatural miracle from heaven. That's amazing, isn't it? To be a Christian is not to get up one day and say, you know what, I'm tired of my sin. I'm going to make a good decision today. And all on my own, I'm going to follow Jesus. Because after all, God helps those who help themselves, right? Wrong, right? Wrong. In reality, we are dead sinners in need of a miracle. And in the Gospel, God comes and He gives us a new nature. And that, obviously, is going to result in a new life. A new life. To say that I have a new nature, but to live the same old sinful life is absolute absurdity. You see, the first time we're born, we're born dead in sin. We're born with evil, corrupt natures. But 2 Peter 1.4 says we have become partakers of the divine nature. That's amazing. It's not that we're simply adopted into the family of God. That's true. We're born into the family of God. We possess the nature of God. Like father, like son. To be a child of someone is to possess the genes of your parents. To be a child of God is to possess the righteous characteristics of Him because He plants them in our hearts at the new birth. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are above all things deceitfully wicked. <coughs> deceitfully wicked. Psalm 58.3 says that we're wicked and we go astray from birth. Try that one for a church sign. Genesis 6.5 says, Our hearts are continuously evil from our youth. That is the way we come into the world. We are born with our hearts corrupt by sin and our nature defiled by that original corruption. But listen to how Ezekiel 36 describes the new birth. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26-27. through 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's the new birth. That's the new birth. God removes the evil, wicked, God-hating heart of stone that hates God, hates His truth, hates His law, And He replaces it with a heart of flesh. A heart that is sensitive, that is responsive to God, responsive to the truth of God. A heart that loves God and hates sin. You think that will change the way you live your life? If God radically changes your inner man? This, God says, is going to cause you to walk in My statute. To obey My ordinances. To keep My Word. That's the new birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way, we are new creatures. 
If anyone is in Christ, he has become a new creature. Behold, all things, old things pass away, new things have come. The pattern of sin is broken at conversion and replaced by a pattern of righteousness. Righteousness. We become partakers of the divine nature. And by the way, that doesn't mean we're deified. That doesn't mean we possess the attributes of God, the perfections of God. It doesn't mean what many heretics today say it means. It doesn't mean we are little gods. That's heretical. You're nothing close to a little, little God. What it means is God passes His righteous character onto you, planting a principle of life and grace and righteousness within you so that you now love, for, love and long for holiness. I've given you an illustration before like this. Let me give it to you again. I think it's really helpful. Uh, Paul Washer says, Imagine you had a pig, and you placed on the left side of the pig a bucket of slop, and you placed on the right side of the pig a nice steak dinner. Uh, I'm probably going to go the way of the pig, honestly. Uh, I'm not big for steak. But which way is the pig going to run? It's going to the slop. Why? Because that is his nature. That's what the pig wants. That's what the pig desires. But if I had the power to all of a sudden miraculously change the nature of the pig while he was eating the slop he would have, and turn him into a human being, he would immediately be disgusted with himself, would wipe his mouth, and probably, after throwing up for a while, run to the steak dinner. Because he had a change of nature, so his desires changes and his habits change. And so it is with believers. At conversion, God gives us His nature, so we're disgusted with sin, we hate sin, and we now love and long for righteousness. That's the way it works. The new birth always issues in a change of behavior, a transformed life. The lie today, this is, this is important, the lie today that many people believe the lie of the false gospel of easy believism, cheap grace, this idea that because you prayed a prayer, because you've got to go to church, because you've walked an aisle, because you filled out a card, because you have Christian parents and go to Sunday school and own a Bible, that all of that assures that I'm a Christian, I'm right with God, and I'm going to heaven. Friends, if your hope is in that, you are deceived. You are deceived. People with good theology go to hell. People with great church attendance go to hell. People who know the Bible and remember verses go to hell. That is not the test of true salvation. The question is, is your life changed? Is your life marked by righteousness? Are we talking about perfection? Of course not. We're talking about, as they say, direction. Are we talking about a sinless night life? No, we're talking about sinning less and less because there's a decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of righteousness. And so we should examine ourselves in light of that. Here's the question. The question is this. Do you see at all any evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life? Even if it's, you say, you know what, not much, but there it is, I see it. I, I don't live the way I once did. I'm growing. I still fall into sin. I still struggle. But my life is changing. I love Christ. I long for righteousness. I hate evil. I agree with the Word of God. You can have confidence that you're a Christian. But friends, if your life is marked by ongoing, non-stop, constant, unrepentant rebellion and sin, you are not a believer. You're a professor, but not a possessor. This is, John, this is John's theme. Chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Let no one deceive you. 
Let no one deceive you. Why does He say that? Because people try to deceive you. He says, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The evidence you're right with God, the evidence you're justified by faith, is you're sanctified by the Spirit. The evidence you're right with God is you practice righteousness. That's the evidence. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 3, we read that a minute ago, the first half, John says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's the difference. The devil's children practice sin. God's children practice righteousness. Jesus also taught this principle. In Luke chapter 6, He gives this wonderful illustration. He says, There is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. That is a brilliant illustration by Jesus. I've told you before, you know, if we're driving down the highway, a car breaks down, there's something wrong with the engine, you don't get it out and give it a paint job and think, oh, that's, that'll fix it. No, the problem's inside. And that's the way it is. We need a new birth. We need a new heart. We need a new nature. And if we have that new nature, it'll manifest itself in righteousness. Righteousness. Just as a good tree produces good fruit. And notice that word he uses. This word's important. He says, everyone. Everyone who practices righteousness. Don't think you're the exception. Don't, think, don't say to yourself, you know what, I know that's what it says, but I know my heart. You know, I know my life is dominated by immorality and pornography and drugs and lust and blasphemy, but it's okay because I know that I love God. I'm sincere. Friends, you can be sincere and go right to hell. Sincerely wrong. Believe the Word of God. These are objective tests by which you can determine the validity and the genuineness of your faith. Jesus gave that warning, Matthew 7. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Imagine that. You live your whole life thinking you're a Christian only to hear those words in the day of judgment away from me and to be plunged into eternal hell. So what do you do? What do you do? You look at your life and you say, you know what, my life is dominated by sin. What do you do? You confess your sin right now to the Lord. You don't need to come up here and... Sign a card and have me pray a prayer with you. you. You can right there in your own seat. Confess your sin to God. Resolve to turn away from that sin. To submit to Christ by faith and live the rest of your life in obedience to Him for His glory. And I can promise you, if you truly turn to Him in faith, you'll find Him to be a sufficient Savior. One who will not only save your soul from hell, but save you from sin's power and tyranny and make you a new creature in Him. So John says, if Christ is righteous... And you know that all of those who are born of Him, who possess His nature, practice righteousness. So that's the evidence of our sonship. That's the evidence. Righteousness. But secondly, we see the motive of our sonship. The motive. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God in such we are. The motive of our sonship then is the love of God. The love of God. John says, see how great a love 
the Father has bestowed on us. A great love. The word see there, the root word there, hara'o, could have the idea of spiritual perception. Spiritual perception. Perceiving with the mind. John is saying, behold, look, gaze upon, meditate, contemplate on the infinite love of God toward His people. John is staggered. John is blown away. John is astonished that God loves sinners. Of course, our culture, that's not the case. Our culture, we think God owes us love. Of course, God loves me. Who wouldn't love me? But if we really knew ourselves and we really knew God, we would realize what an amazing truth it is that God loves us. How hard is it to forgive someone when they wrong you? We are a people who have wronged God over and over again, a people who have broken every commandment He's ever given us, a people who have hated Him, despised Him, a people who, if we could, would have ripped Him off of His throne, and yet in His sovereign grace, He loves us. John says, look at the love of God. John's desire for his flock was the same as the Apostle Paul's for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul prayed this, for those saints, to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Paul wanted these believers to fathom, to comprehend, to have a clear understanding of the glorious, infinite love of God for His people. A love that paradoxically surpasses comprehension. In his book entitled Communion with God, John Owen wrote this about the love of the Father. He said, Commonly the Father, the first person in the Trinity, is seen as only full of wrath and anger against sin. Sinful men can have no other thoughts of God, but in the Gospel, God is now revealed especially as love, as full of love to us. To bring home to us this great truth is the special work of the Gospel. That's right. We often think God is a God of wrath, God is a God of anger, And we understand that, especially in our circles. Those who have a high view of God. Those who have sound theology. We get it. We talk about it. God is wrathful. And it's hard to view Him any other way when you get wrapped up in that. But John Owen is saying God, toward His people, is full of love. Full of love. And then he adds this. He says, do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in Him. Set your thoughts on the love of God. Owen says this is our communion with the Father when we think of Him as love toward us, as a God of love toward His people. God loves us. That's amazing. He loves us. And His love is displayed in many, many ways. God displays His love through His providence. He provides for us. He meets our needs. He keeps us, prevents us from diseases and sicknesses. God has manifested His love to us in many ways. But what is the greatest demonstration of God's love? The cross. The cross. 1 John 4, he says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's the love of God. There's the love of God. God could have justly condemned every single one of us who are in this room today to hell forever, and He would be just for doing that. Did you know that? If God were to send all of us to hell, not only would He be good and just, but the angelic host should praise His name for it. That's how wretched we are. 
And yet, in His love and in His sovereign grace, for His own glory, He has chosen instead to slaughter His own Son in our place so that His wrath is satisfied and we go free. That is the love of God. And by the way, there's a common misconception, I think. People think God loves me because Christ died for me. Right? Because Jesus died for me, God can now love me. That's not true. In reality, Christ died for you because God already loved you. God already loved you. That's why God devised the plan of salvation. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He crushed Him on the cross. It was because out of His love for sinners, He chose to save them through the work of Christ. God displays His love in the cross. John 3.16 says that, doesn't it? God so loved the world, gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Romans 5.8, Paul said the same thing. God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if you don't believe God loves you, then all you have to do is look at the cross, where instead of you perishing under God's wrath, the Son of God dies in your place. So God displays His love in many, many ways. But here John says God displays His love toward us through the grace of adoption. The grace of adoption. Look what he says. He says, verse 1 again, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. God's love for us has made us His children. Of course, that implies that before we were converted, we were not His children. You see, there's only two ways to become a part of a family officially. There's only two ways to officially become a son or a daughter of a parent. Either by birth or by adoption. By birth or by adoption. Of course, for the Christian, both are true. Both are true. As Christians, we're both born into the family of God and we're adopted into the family of God. We become children by both the grace of adoption, and the grace of regeneration. Both are true. Both highlight a distinct reality of our sonship. You see, the the new birth, birth highlights the fact that we share the nature of God. We possess His righteous character, just like a parent passes his genes on to his child. But adoption emphasizes transference, being taken out of one family and placed into another family. That's what happens at conversion. We go from being the children of the devil to being the children of God. We're transferred out of Satan's family into God's family. God makes us His children. And the amazing thing is, God was not moved by anything outside of Himself to do this. God did not adopt us because there was some merit or worth in us. He did not adopt us because we were deserving of it, because He needed us. He was moved simply by His own sovereign grace His love, and the good pleasure of His will. Listen to what Ephesians 1 says. Ephesians 1 says, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. God predetermined before the world ever began to make you His child, and He did it out of love and for His glory. God did it all because He loved His people. That's why we're the children of God. We're born not of the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. It's God's will, God's grace, God's plan, God's love. That covers the divine side of it. That's the divine side of our sonship. What about from the human perspective? 
What about from our side? What do we do to become the children of God? Scripture tells us in many places, in John chapter 1, verse 12, we read this, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. That's how you become a child of God. Through faith. Through saving faith in Christ. Through union with Christ. We become sons through the Son. We become sons through faith in the Son. Galatians 3.26 puts it this way, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Through faith, we're transferred into the family of God. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Come out of them. Come out of their midst. And I'll welcome you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. In other words, for those who come out of the world, out of the evil system of darkness, and they come to Christ in faith, they will become sons and daughters of God. Children of God. Which means if you're not a Christian today, friends, you can't claim this hope. You can't claim this promise. This is a promise. This is a hope that is bestowed only upon true Christians. True believers. Those who abide in Christ. Those who display that reality by manifesting righteousness. Those are the ones who have any hope and any real substantial confidence that they are the beloved children of God. This is a love that is peculiar for the Christian. For the Christian. You see, when we talk about God's love, we could do so in two categories. There is God's love of benevolence, and then there's God's love of complacency. His love of benevolence and His love of complacency. God's love of benevolence, that's His general goodwill towards all people. Why? Why did Adolf Hitler live as long of a life as he did? Why did Adolf Hitler enjoy food and drink and good seasons and times from heaven? Because God was gracious to him. Because God had a good will toward him and all people in his general love of benevolence. That is what we could also call common grace. But God's love of complacency is his saving love of delight. A love that is only bestowed upon the elect. A love that is only bestowed upon his people. You see, when Paul says, in love He predestined us, that is a love that is peculiar to us who are predestined. God didn't predestine all to become children. He predestined a group of people whom He set His gracious love upon. That is a love that is only experienced by the true Christian. His salvific love. That love is withheld from the unbeliever. You see, if you're an unbeliever, Psalm 5.5 says, God hates the worker of iniquity. Psalm 7.11 says God is angry with the wicked every day. If you're not a believer, you're not under the saving love of God. You're under the wrath of God. But if you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, you've received the right to become God's children. You've received the grace of adoption. You've been lavished with this infinite and glorious love. So John says we are called children of God. And not only are we called the children of God, but John adds at the end here, and such we are. We're not just called the children of God, we are the children of God. We're not just children in name, we're children in actuality. We are the children of God. We possess His nature, we've been adopted into His family, we are the children of God. You know, we often use language like this, we'll say things like, you know, that person's my son or my daughter, everyone knows that Ian is the 
child we can't get rid of. <laughs> so we, we understand that. We, we use language like that. What we really mean by that is Ian's around us all the time. We care for Ian. We look at him like a son. But with our, our case as Christians, this is an official sonship. It's not that God just bestows the name upon us. He has really adopted us and He has really given us His nature. You really are, if you're a Christian, a child of God. And John is astounded by that. He says, just look at that infinite love, that great love. The word there for great, by the way, originally referred to something from another country. John's saying, look, this love is like out of the world. This love, where did it even come from? I can't, this is unparalleled love. This love can't be compared to anything in the universe. It is the love of God. And just consider the privileges of being a child of God. The privileges of being a believer. Being adopted into God's family. Who is it that loves us? A God who is in heaven. A God who has all of the resources of heaven and earth at His disposal. A God who can do all things. Who works all for our good. A God who is going to give us good gifts. Human fathers often give bad gifts. Right? I remember... My parents never did that. I open up good gifts, but my kids probably open up presents they don't like. They have to open up clothes, and we've all been there, right? But God always gives good gifts. You see, Jesus said, what, which, of, which father among you, if your son asks for you know, an egg, you're going to give him a stone? If asks for a piece of bread, you're going to give him a snake? Of course not. We'll give good gifts to our children. And if we, Jesus said, being evil, human fathers, give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? God is going to give us good gifts. All that we need can be provided for us by Him. He also gives us the Spirit, right? Gives us the Spirit. Galatians says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He gives us the Spirit. He gives us an inheritance. Romans 8 says, If we're sons of God, children of God, we're heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. A son receives the estate from the Father, the inheritance from the Father. So we, as the children of God, are going to receive all that is His, all that belongs to God, all that belongs to Christ, because we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's who you are. That's who you are. You need to realize that as a Christian. On your worst of days, God loves you. When you blow it, God loves you. On your best of days, God still loves you, and it's only because of His grace still. But God loves His people. And we know from Romans chapter 8, He works all things for our good. So we rejoice in that great love. So the evidence then of our sonship is righteousness, and the motive of our sonship is the love of God. We know we're children of God because we practice righteousness. We obey God. And what is it that motivated God, moved God to make us His children? Nothing but His sovereign grace and love for us. And we'll look at the last two aspects of our sonship next week. But for now, brothers and sisters, may we pursue righteousness. May we pursue holiness. That we might know that indeed we are the children of God. May we delight in the love of God. May we delight in our status as sons and daughters of God. And may we seek to live up to that status for the glory of the One who has saved us and made us His own. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that You love us. It's amazing. It's astonishing. 
If we really grasp the doctrine of God, if we really grasp the doctrine of man, if we really fathom your infinite holiness and our utter depravity, the fact that you love us is a shock. It's a shock that you would love a people like us. We know there's nothing in us that moves you to that. Simply your good pleasure. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've made us your children. We thank you that you've sent your spirit into our hearts, that he confirms our sonship. And we thank you that we have the hope of eternal glory and an everlasting inheritance into the kingdom of God. Help us now by grace to live the rest of our lives reflecting that reality as representatives of the Father in heaven, to live our lives in a way that is becoming of the children of God, that lives up to that great name. And may you give us grace to do that for your glory. Amen.